Well, hello, listeners. I'm Bridget. And I'm Caroline. You are listening to Hearth, Home, and Homicide, a family production about family murders. My daughter Caroline and I narrate each story, and son and brother Andy is our producer. As Caroline and I talk about each family murder, we keep sensitivity for victims and their families in mind. Our podcasts do include violence and trauma. Listener discretion is advised. Well, hey, Caroline. Hey. How you doing today? Doing pretty good. Can't complain. Well, we've got a new year under our feet and, you know. Will I be writing the 24 instead of the 23 on, you know, anybody reading my uh, notes to self and diaries are probably going to be very confused about what year this actually happened. (laughs) I will say I've heard of a new, I know people often do resolutions, right? Commitments to oneself in the the new year. And then there's a lot of psychology and study around how miserable that actually makes us. And I read a different take on it, which I think I might want to try this year, which is to, on New Year's, instead of making a resolution for the next year, take a look back at accomplishments from the previous year. And I don't mean like, I got a new job. I did that, because then that'll make you a little bit depressed. But it's like, I went and got an annual checkup for my health. Like, that's a huge accomplishment, I think, in this day and age. I went and saw a therapist. Like, these are accomplishments. So I just think... For me, that's something I'm going to go try and do is what is the little things that actually make up, you know, being a human and, and what have I accomplished in 2023? Absolutely. You know, I, I have a similar, uh, I, I, I didn't hear the looking back thing and I, I want to do that this year, but um, I also have like a, people my age really need to have a 10-year plan. <laughs> because it's it's just so important to still be working toward a goal, even you may know you may not be working for at a paying job anymore. Um, and how are you going to continue to manifest that ten year plan yeah. this year? And so for twenty twenty four, I've got my, um, I've got some of my at the end of the year. I pretend like it's already the end of twenty twenty four, and I talk about you know what I did this year to move the needle a little bit. So I think everybody has a do over. Uh, You know, two weeks ago they were involved in their their do over, and by now they're probably rethinking their do over plans. (laughs) But you know, I still believe in not resolutions, but just, you know, how am I going to manifest my 10 year plan? I like that. uh, I I like writing into your future. This is what my year will. Yeah. No, just to mix it up a little this year, everybody. All right. Well, today we're not going to stay put in Washington state. We're traveling north to Ontario, Canada. And that's where our story takes place. And what a story it is, because it's very, uh, challenging for me to try to understand not only what was going on, but what is going on in this story after the murder. And so uh, let's get going and see if we can figure some things out. Today's story begins in 1997 in Chatham, Ontario, Canada. Now, Chatham, Ontario is just a 45-minute drive from Detroit, And it was in this year that a baby by the name of Mason Jenkins would be born to Leslie and 
Brian Jenkins. Leslie trained and worked as an elementary school teacher, and Brian was a sales representative for a chemical supply company. And two years after their first baby, Mason, was born, here comes a baby sister whose name is Jennifer. And uh, Mason is going to murder Jennifer uh, in our uh, retelling of this story. And it just makes me sick in my heart. I have a lot of room for love for Jennifer because she was just a happy, fun-loving, organized girl and then became a woman. She was surrounded by many, many friends. She was very gregarious. I think she was an extrovert. She's very loving. Uh, She had a lot of fun. So she was willing to have new experiences and uh, make, and she made great grades all the way through the public school system there. And her older brother, Mason, even today would tell you that she was going places. There was just, there was something about her that eked uh, a strong will, a strong drive, a strong commitment, uh, visionary, hardworking, lots of friends. This person deserved an entire life to help this world along a little bit. And she didn't get that because of her brother, Mason. So we're going to talk about it. Yeah, he says that his sister was always going places. He, on the other hand, he Mason was in and out of detention and jail since the age of 12. I mean, can can I even imagine that? No. Well, and I cannot Canada, imagine. I think... I definitely have a preconceived notion that all Canadians are born perfectly nice and that, you know, it's it's an anomaly if you found a criminal in Canada. <laughs> but I know that's not true. It's very naive thinking. No, it's not true, but it's a happy little tale. And the, the Canadians do tend to be just happy, well-adjusted, well-meaning, yes. uh, laid-back people. And I think probably to, you know, a great extent, that's probably a good stereotype, an accurate stereotype for many Canadians. But anyway, um, his crimes were property related. They were never violent. He was into robbery and car theft. Now, when I read that, I'm thinking, okay, so he likes to sneak around. Yeah, like get away with things. Like it's He a, likes it's... to sneak around, get away with things. He's playing a little game called You Can't See Me. Right. Very childish. Yeah. Um, Mason was just uh, a difficult child. And, uh, but nobody ever saw him being violent at all. In my opinion, Caroline, as I looked into this case, and what really stood out to me between these two kids was that Jennifer enjoyed the process needed to succeed, and her brother Mason did not. He enjoyed this other process. That's a good distinction, I think, across most human personality. (laughs) Yeah, well, yeah, there's that. And he was, it was just easier for him to steal and, and be successful at that. And, and again, when I think of people who are doing this and, and trying to make a living out of it, I'm thinking, okay, so he's got friends who probably are similarly thinking, or maybe he's a, maybe he's a lone wolf. I don't know. That's a good point, though. 
what's his commute what's his small community like yeah yeah i mean you know to him achievement of money and success by way of accomplishment was just too hard so he was antisocial i guess would be a component of his makeup he we don't know that he can be violent at this right. point of 12 but we know that he does not want to conform to social norms such as laws about well, other people's property. I wonder if there was any feeding in because I don't know what the dynamics of this family were. Even though we have extensive views into their life, we don't actually know what the early dynamics were of the kids and the mom and the dad and the was Jennifer always getting the the praise in, in unintentionally to a degree that Mason felt like there was no hope for him in this arena. So I'm just going to go a different direction to gain whatever it is I need from my family unit or from my life. Does that make oh, sense? Was yeah. there a in of I'm the F up? She's yeah. the golden child. So I'll just go. Well, I do you. think that might've been going on um, because he was the F up and she was the child who was, Shimmering, shining, you know, laudable, popular, uh, all of the above. Yeah. Now, early in her career as a school teacher, Leslie, the mom here, made a departure from her vocation and trained in the mental health field and began a career in that field. Now, I find that very interesting. Did yeah. she do that in order to understand her son? I don't right. know. Yeah. But it was a flourishing family. It was a very good family. She and her husband made a good incomes and life was good. Now, one thing about uh, the town where they're living in Chatham, no crime, maybe one murder a year. Um, and uh, Detroit at that time was known as Murder City. Oh, and I know. So it's just, fair. I don't know, the whole thing is very, the more I read the story from my notes, the more I remember that when I first encountered this story, I thought, well, this is just flat out Kafka-esque. Yes. This is surreal. This it can't is. be happening. Right. But it did happen. Well, and it's so uncomfortable as well for me. I know in diving in just to the things, it's just so uncomfortable, but it you can't look away. Right. Yeah. So the Jenkins family and many of their friends were living the good life in this safe community. Detroit is just a stone's throw away and that's murder city, but that's not us. Uh, we are crime free. Um, all the holidays were celebrated by them. Them being the family that we're talking about today, but them being all of them people up in Canada and Chatham. <laughs> They were just, everybody got into it, decorating, lots of love between family members. This family was very close-knit, and they lived in a close-knit community. So now that we know that Mason is going to be a killer, and he's going to be a siblicide committer, uh, and in fact, he tried to be a family annihilator. We'll read about, we'll uh, talk about that. but. Um, when you live in an insulated family and you live in an insulated town, 
it's kind of Mayberry-esque where all of the mishaps are funny in the end. Let's write a story about it. Right. Um, it just that closer. glow. Yeah. yeah. There's a, there's a glow and there's a, it's not fake. It's real, but there's a sheen on it that could obscure looking into the future for things that might happen. Nobody's thinking about that because it doesn't happen. Right. I, I don't know what I'm trying to say other than I feel like I'm going down a dark, dark rabbit hole to get to this uh, land of Oz. And uh, it just gets weirder and weirder by the moment. And yet it's not weird. It's beautiful. It's what everybody wants. So right. anyway, Mason was just a constant trouble and always, always being forgiven by his family. I don't know if there was boys will be boys sort of thing going on. But I just uh, when I read about this family and I and I um, think about them and certainly when I think about Jennifer and her parents, I just heave a heavy sigh. Yeah. Like yeah. this is not going well. Well, because you don't I mean, a lot of times I think that when we go through stories and we comb through the details and we hear all the accounts, you know, you start to formulate these points of potential impact, right? Where maybe if something shifted, it, things would have been different. I don't really see that here. I don't have a lot of understanding about the actual inner workings of the family. Because by all accounts, it, it was just as you described, this perfect, I mean, relatable to my own family upbringing, right? Like in this, no. so the outcome here is so just... Well, yeah, I, it's hard to understand. It makes me uncomfortable. But but what really stands out is the parents and their dedication, their drive, their focus towards like moving forward. Anyway, but it is a heavy sigh-esque kind of tale. It is. You know, uh, when I think about raising with Ted three children, Oh, I, I, if I really stop and think about it, I'm thinking, how did I do that? Because there yeah. was always some kind of drama going on. And somebody was always veering off the path that I just told you, you need to stick to. Yes. And so part <laughs> of the, if you look back on your childhood and you're thinking that's pretty good, some of that is going to be, you made some mistakes and you paid dearly for it. That's true. Yeah. And, and cause I can remember some things where, okay, oh Lord, let's not go down the road, but yes, I remember too. <laughs> either one, two or either one, two or three of my children were pissed off at me all at the same time, or possibly four people were pissed off at me. I know. At the it's same of, well, we had dogs too. Don't forget. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so anyway, Mason was doing a stretch of time in the local jail on Christmas, 1997. He didn't get out of jail until the day after Christmas. A week later, his sister Jennifer, who was just 18, would be dead. So this is not fitting in at all with Chatham and their Christmas doings. And I think at the top of the episode, Caroline, I said that uh, that our story started in 1997. But it starts in 1997 when these kids are grown. They're 18, yeah. they're 20. Um, Mason was doing time in jail during Christmas. 
I'm surprised that Canada didn't let him out for Christmas and Boxing Day the next day. But anyway, they didn't. They kept him in jail after Christmas. A week later, his sister would be dead. She was shot to death in her own home while watching TV and eating popcorn. Three shots to the head and two to her heart. Her body was dragged to the basement where it was later found by the father, Brian. Now, Brian just breaks my heart. He, the father, is so full of love and just, he's got a one-track mind when it comes to his family. He really does. Love, just love and protect. I think that may be his... The mother might be more into trying to build a good family, trying to understand her family yes, and what makes a good family and all that kind of stuff. But anyway, I wasn't there, so I don't know, but I know a little bit about Brian, the father, and I know that he's just someone I love and I want to protect, but it doesn't go that way. So Leslie and Brian Jenkins would be in the worst no-win situation that I can imagine. Jennifer's brother and the only living child of Leslie and Brian, Mason Jenkins, would be arrested and tried for Jennifer's murder, and he would be found guilty. Mason was 20 at the time of the murder. He was sent to prison with no chance of parole for 25 years. You and I were talking uh, recently about how Canadians, they, you've got life in, you got, you get life in prison, um, no chance of parole for 25 years. We don't do that here south of the Canadian border. It's, it's more like, you know, life with or without parole. Right. And, and you're going to die in jail. Means you're gonna life yeah. without parole means you you will be deceasing passing within the four walls of the jail. Yeah, you're the only way out is in your box, and uh, you know, I did look into does Canada have uh, capital punishment? No, they do not. Does Canada have life without parole? They do. It's sentence someone sentenced to natural life. Oh, and okay. it's extremely rare. It's extremely okay. rare. And uh, and I think that in Canada, you can revisit that later, you know, like, I'm well, entering into my unnatural sense. life period, so can I go now? I mean, yeah. I don't know. I'm all for systems that, you know, make sense in the realities of the world we live in. I mean, so. One way to look at Leslie and Brian Jenkins and this no-win situation that they're in is that they fail to, I don't want to say fail. I observe that they are thinking that they have lost one child. Mm-hmm. Many, many people would think they've lost two children. They've lost all of their children. They've lost both of their children. But that's mm-hmm. not what they did. They looked at it as we've lost one child. Yeah. And they still have another child named Mason. And he's in prison now, so what are we going to do to be his family? That's what they did. Yeah. Uh, I do want to talk a little bit about the crime, although this is not a crime show. It's not a gore show. It's not any of that. But I do think it's important to understand the crime. Number one, obviously, it was not foreseen by anyone. Mason was a bit of a hoodlum, but he was never violent. 
Mason and Jennifer were loving siblings whose parents included them in every family event. The home was a loving home in which Mason was a full and loving participant. So what was the case against him? Well, normally, Leslie and Brian arrive home in separate cars at separate times. And remember, Leslie and Brian are the parents. Both on, but on January 6th, 1998, the day of the murder, they were coming home at the same time in the same car because Brian's car was being serviced. And nobody knew about this deviation from the norm other than Leslie and Brian. So the kids don't know that. They, the kids, expected them to come home and find them, the kids, goofing off, working on homework or helping out with chores. Uh, Goofing off is what Jennifer was doing. She was watching a show. She was eating some popcorn. She may have been watching it for school. You know, I don't know. Instead, Leslie saw a, when Leslie came in the house, so just, you know, she's opening the front door. She comes, she, the entrance to her house, she goes into her house and she sees a blood trail going from the TV room to the basement. She screamed and screamed and screamed and her husband, Brian, came running to see what was happening and he just followed the blood trail, Caroline. He went down to the basement. And he found his obviously deceased daughter and called 911. He was very certain that Jennifer was dead. She was just gone. She was too far gone to not be dead. But he tried to revive her anyway. Mm -hmm. His wife, meanwhile, had found blood on the chair as if Jennifer was murdered by gunshot while watching TV. Yeah, see, she's she's trying to understand things. Yeah. What happened here? She saw the drag, drag marks, of course. She heard poor Brian's frantic call. She tried to find Mason, but he was not home, and she feared that he had been kidnapped. Responders realized that the killing had taken place between 4 and 5.15 that afternoon. A single-shot rifle was the killing weapon. Detectives didn't know it, but it turns out Mason was on his cousin's horse, gallivanting around the town when they started looking for him, had he been kidnapped. And later, Mason would say, even though he was on horseback, running all around on this horse, uh, he said he was not trying to escape. He was just trying to think. Oh, Lord. When Mason was located, he said that he had been kidnapped by four men in a white van. They came in the house, and they maybe stole some stuff. They stuck him in the van, and then one of them went back into the house with a gun. That's all he knew. Yeah. Uh, Well, there was that and getting on that horse and running around. I know. Like, when did they let you loose out of this van? Why would they go back in the house to kill somebody? It's a if sad they were there story. to steal. I do believe this was entirely his story from the beginning because he keeps repeating it, right? Uh-huh. <laughs> like if you look at all the materials we can look at, he just keeps repeating this piece. So this was always going to be his fail-safe story. 
four well, minutes. Well, yeah, I mean, Caroline, he did repeat his story, but the story kept changing. So it was more like a, it was more like a, a storyboard where I can yes. lift off yes. the magnetic pieces and move them later in the story. But I yeah. felt, I felt like this four men in a van was an anchor piece for him. Did you get that sense that this? Yes. You know. Even after he relinquishes the detail that that never happened, there were never four men in a van. <laughs> He's right. still stuck with, but that four was men my in mind. A van. Four men in a van. So that's got to mean something. I have no background to uh, analyze that. Yeah. But I agree with you that that was one thing that he clung to. Um, and he started, of course, stripping away lies from yes. himself, but that one lingered a long time. He still brings maybe it up. He, as a, maybe as a, he wanted to steal four vans, but he knew he would have to have four more men to help him. I don't know. I don't know. We but don't know anyway. why he came up with that. But he does bring it up as a means of like explaining other details when he's asked right. to recount the story. Well... Yeah, that doesn't make sense because my, but I, you have to understand, I was coming from a place of like, what would four men in a van do? <laughs> you know, which is weird, but. Well, he, this is going to become even more Kafkaesque because he, he, Mason was arrested for suspicion of murdering his sister. When police and detectives came to the Jenkins home, uh, you know, after the body had been removed and so forth and so on. It looked very immaculate to them, save for the crime scene in the TV room in the basement. But there was a curiosity on the kitchen table, Caroline. There was actually two curiosities on the kitchen table. One was a last will and testament for Brian. One was a last will and testament for Leslie. Each bequeathed all their property and worldly possessions, including money, to their son, Mason. Each had been forged, obviously, by someone other than Leslie and Brian, who, in fact, had no wills. And these faux wills were dated the day of the murder. Oh, I mean... hapless scheme here. <laughs> I don't know why he didn't just dip his hand in blood and leave his handprint on the kitchen table i mean or better still why don't just become a thief of your parents that they have to deal with rather than attempting to kill your entire family but this is a clue know. that he was going to clear, clear kill his entire family oh, yeah he also had placed a call to his mother at 4 45 asking her when she would be home Police theorized that this was the moment Mason became aware that his mother and father were traveling together and would be arriving home at the same time. Now, since both wills were laid upon the table, it's safe to say that Mason was planning to kill his sister, his mother, and then his father because they would all be arriving at separate times. Mason was using a single-shot rifle, Caroline, and he would have to reload between shootings. Oh my God. He could only do that if everyone he targeted was alone. I mean, that's some pre, that's major premeditation to me. I mean, you've created these wells, you've. It's so now we know he can do math, you know, well, yeah. why do you have to go out there and steal? Uh, well, that's, you I mean, have, just, you do math. It's such a hapless tale that you've woven. And like, 
what's your objective? Like you're dating the Wills the day you're going to kill them. And no one, you just think no one's going to ask how Jennifer was also magically included in the killings. Like it's all very toddler hand over the eyes to me, which is, of course. It is. I mean, he's, he's obviously thinks that one step at a time, he doesn't put his steps on index cards and then put them in order so he can build a plan, which is a trick I used when I had a big project that I needed to plan. I just listed everything that needed to to be done in no particular order. And then I would rearrange the cards and then write my timeline and my plan. He didn't do any of that. He didn't have any burglar tools that would show him how to do that. But he did Mm -hmm. know how to do math. But he didn't know how to get out of his math problem when his parents came together. And he knew that he couldn't. If he tried to kill his mother first, he's going to have to reload. Well, his father's going to take the gun away from him. Yeah. And so forth. Although the murders happened in 1998. Mason was not tried until 2001, so he would not be eligible for parole until 2026, minus his time served. So at the earliest, it would be 2023. So that creeps me out because that that was just two weeks ago. Right. (laughs) Three weeks (laughs) ago. Happened though, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, 2023 did happen, and he's still in prison. Okay, good. Mason denies any involvement in his sister's death in spite of fake wills and the lack of evidence to support four intruders. Now, that was at the beginning of the whole thing. When he went, when he went to trial, he was still denying any involvement with any of it. As if siblicide was not unique enough, this, cl- this case stands out to uh, me because of the way the parents stayed involved with their daughter's killer, their surviving child, Mason. He was in prison, and in Canadian prison, a few things surprised me quite a bit. I knew there were some differences, but I didn't know about this part. For example, Mason was allowed to have 72-hour visits with his parents in a faux cottage on prison grounds. So here comes Leslie with groceries for three days into the faux cottage. Yeah. Uh, I'm just wondering how many times does she have to take those groceries out of the bag to have them screened, you know? Right. Yeah. It's a lot. Here she is. She's stocking the fridge and setting up the barbecue. Thanks to a Canadian documentary called Murder for Life. Please, listeners, go out there and watch that uh, documentary. It's a Canadian documentary. You can stream it from, you know, multiple places. Uh, it's all on tape watching this mom come in and do this. It's like, I don't think it could get any weirder if there was a dead body in the middle of the room and everybody was just stepping over it. I think that would actually lighten the mood a bit because it is this extremely uncomfortable show to watch. But I am so, like like I said, you cannot turn away because it's, to me, that's an important thing to look at. And like you said, the parents... Um, I think you had said this before, like that's miraculous and remarkable that these parents had the same inclination towards moving forward as each other. That's, you know, one parent could have totally been like, forget it. I, like you said, I'd lost two kids, but that's not what they did. And, and watching someone go through that is incredibly uncomfortable, but I think it's really powerful. So I appreciate that this murder for life uh, documentary exists, but boy. It's difficult to watch. 
it is very difficult to watch. And um, every four hours, there's a phone call to step outside. Everybody step outside. Everyone in the house party, I put those in quotes, has to step outside for a live head count, during which a guard goes into the house and searches. There's a kitchen with four knives in a wall knife holder, Caroline. I mean, real knives. Well, you need to be able to cut up all those vegetables that Mama just brought you to your folk cottage. There's a lot of eating, empty chatter, and town updates. Uh, Caroline, it's almost like somebody has scripted a lie for you and two other people, and you're all going to meet in a room, and you're going to act like that lie is real, and you're going to, every four hours... Uh, let the guard in on your lie to make sure that you're sticking to your lie yeah. and, um, you know, not doing anything untoward with the knives and so forth and so on. I mean, to me, this would make the creepiest movie. Yes. You would not know up from down by the time you got through watching it. That's a perfect so, way to frame it, too, that you've been given this lie and you all have to act as though this lie is the truth. And go. I mean, it's so uncomfortable. <laughs> I know. On these videos, we can watch Leslie organizing everything, and Brian is losing 100 pounds right before the camera lens. I mean, they show many visits, and every time there's a visit to the faux cottage to talk about the, you know, pretend like the, there's a lie that they have to pretend about, he's lost 20 pounds till at the end of, you know, a uh, year or so, he's down a hundred pounds and gets frailer and frailer and frailer as the years roll by in the faux cottage. In 2016, when Brian was 67 and looking rather weak, Mason changed his murder story. Now, did he change it because his father was about to die? And he wanted to tell his father a closer version of the truth, not the truth, but the, a closer version, or I don't know. But Mason now claims, this is in 2016, Matt Mason now claims that he accidentally killed his sister when his rifle fell from the top of a cabinet while he was putting it there. And once he realized that he killed his sister, he came up with a plan to show multiple intruders by shooting her five more times for a total of three in the head and two in the heart. He dragged her to the basement because he wanted to spare his parents the sight of their daughter shot like that first thing upon arriving home. Do I think that he actually wanted to spare his parents anything? No, I do not. I think that's just a let's just change the shirt on our lie. Yeah. And now look, we need a different size and a few more details that we didn't need before. And now I'm gonna put that lie out there like it's the truth. That's what I, mean, I think he was doing. Yeah. More palatable. Do, do I think he was reluctant to shoot his sister five times? No, because it was a single shot rifle. And I Single shot rifle, you got to put a bullet in every time. It's a whole thing. You got to go through steps. Well, it's, yeah, there, yes, steps. Like you have to be conscious of what you're doing. 
Yeah. I don't think this had anything to do with his daddy. I think he wanted to get closer to a confession because he wanted to be paroled and would not have to and would have to own his murder. He would have to he'd have to get closer to I did it to get paroled. Canada also has a faint hope early parole eligibility. And so, therefore, he did not want to alienate his parents. He's got to have somewhere to go if he gets out on the faint hope. Oh, right. Okay. He likes the food. He likes the visits. Yeah. And he likes, I think, manipulation and control. That's my opinion. Yeah. I can see by the look on him and the way he acts in these videos of them in the folk cottage that he likes food and he likes the visits, but he was very strategic about everything, I think. So, you know, he had the brains to live in the world, but but yeah, he had the brains to to support himself. I know they say if you get caught a lot, you're a bad criminal, but I mean, he still was clearly you know, they say people don't do things unless there's some benefit there for them. So, I mean, he found a little niche in lying, in manipulation, in, you know, faking and giving people what they want to hear versus, you know, what the reality is. Like, I think there's, yeah, he found his little path that he was comfortable walking. You know, at the beginning, when I said that I thought, you know, everybody thought he was a hoodlum. Yeah. Yeah. Because he was stealing cars and property and all this kind of stuff. And, uh, and But he was never violent. I wonder if he would consider himself violent. I don't think he thought that what he did was violence. I think what he did was like a step that you take when you see a car that has the windows down or the door unlocked. And you're going to go in there and hotwire that car. Just an I think he saw it as a step. Yeah. I don't think he sees it as violence. Yeah. Uh, Do I think he actually wanted to spare his parents anything? No. Over the years, he kept changing little parts of his story until one day he finally said there were no intruders. Now, Caroline, you really focused in on a particular character in the jail that um, I think played a big role in why his story began to unravel and get a little closer to the truth, not the truth, but a little closer. Yes. I can't remember. Who was that that you were talking about? Well, and I feel badly that I cannot remember this woman's name, but she, in the documentary, they follow him in his facility, whatever this jail facility is. Um and she is she appears like she's a bailiff maybe or something to that effect she's part of law enforcement but i don't think that's what she is i think she has him as a case so she's a case manager in this way maybe like a quasi like if he were on the outside she'd be a parole okay yeah person but um his parole officer but inside she has multiple discussions with him about going over the details again because you know her goal is like okay if you want to go before the parole board this is what they're going to want to hear. This is what they're going to want to know. The way you're telling it now is real weird. (laughs) You know, she just is so bold. But at the same time, she's poking enough at him to get these pieces out that I think are important, at least in understanding why he's telling the story the way he tells the story. And that's a big Mm -hmm. piece here. Even Leslie and Brian do that. Everyone's telling this story in a way that makes it comfortable for them to absorb this story because it's 
really hard to take in, you know. But she was, I think she did a good job in saying like, that sounds weird. Why would you do that? She just kept poking at him for bits of the story. And that's why I say he kept coming back with, we have to understand four intruders, four intruders. This is what I'm thinking, four intruders, Mm -hmm. which I kind of, you know, I guess I kind of was sympathetic to him on that point. Like, okay, I guess if that is where your mind's coming from, it doesn't have to make sense. That's where your mind was. That's Mm -hmm. a fake story. That's why it doesn't make sense. But it's really what it's a pretend van. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a pre van, like a Prius van, but it's a it's a live van, like a you know. But it was his lifeline. Clearly, it's what he thought was going to just save him. These four men in a van. Yes. The van of ridiculousness. So yeah. over the years, you know, he he did keep changing the story because he was being prodded by this person yes. to tell the story again. And, you know, if you go before the parole board, they're going to, you know, they're going to be able to poke holes in that. You know, like, mm-hmm. you know, I don't understand this part here. Like, why, why is that? You know? Yeah. Um, but it took him many, many, many years to finally say, you know, I did make up the van part and the four men. I did. It took it took him many years, and he just did not want his parents to see him as a killer because he was concerned about losing his uh, time in the in the faux cottage and the and the home make home baked food. I mean, she came and baked and cooked for him homemade food. So, but anyway, he finally came loose on that because he he's interested in parole. Toward the end of his father's life, prematurely dying by inches for the world to see, Mason admitted that his plan was to kill them too. Oh, wow. Oh, Lord. That had to yeah. be some thick air in that room. Oof. It's very sad to me to think of Brian and Leslie Jenkins. If they disowned him and they forgot about Mason, they would be cold and callous, and in addition to knowing that their community already thought they were nuts and must be bad parents to raise a serial killer, I mean, excuse me, a sister killer, if they accepted their son as still their son, albeit a killer son, they must be in denial. But to them, they were just trying to mitigate this huge loss of losing Jennifer and her future. So now they're not going to be grandparents ever. No. They're not going to walk her down the aisle. They're not going to be able to plan a wedding if those were her choices, and it seemed like they probably were. Oh, yeah. Well, and I think They're more... not going to be able to have a retirement well, that would more... have any meaning at all. More powerfully, Jennifer seemed like she, I mean, she, she was going places. What, what impact positively on this world are we all short now because of this yes. situation? You know? Brian and Leslie Jenkins were very harshly judged by society no matter what they did. We, we were talking about how sweet and nice and gentle and caring the Canadians are. Uh, no, they're not when it comes to live and let live. Right. They they turned their back on this family. They ridiculed this family. People who had known this family for many, many years 
would see them walking down the street and cross the street to not have to go past them. Oh, a That's double horrible. victimization for the parents. Oh. I feel like they're in the walking dead. Well, yeah. And honestly, looking at the mom and the dad, because the, the dad is almost more sad to think about because he genuinely, there are some things he's, his, I don't think he was ever going to let in, you know what I mean? About this situation. Whereas the mom, I think maybe it's her training. She really needed the details to come out and be on the, as she said, lay it on the table so that we can get to moving forward. For her, it's not, a, it's all happened. For her, she says, my daughter is dead. Nothing I do now changes that. My son is in jail. He's guilty of the act. Nothing I do changes that. But to put it out, look at it all, just put it out there and then we can move past it. And I thought that that was really powerful and very scary. I know a lot of people, like her husband couldn't do that. He wasn't willing to look at all of it. He'd be willing to look at certain parts under the guise of an accident. But I don't think he was ever going to be willing to hear the true, 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 true strategy and plan that Mason Yeah, had. I mean, you know, he did hear, he did finally hear that his son was going to murder him. And the mother was going to be murdered as well, according to the plan. And mm. they kept visiting. And I remember one quote from Leslie saying that, you know, we could never have a real conversation or a real visit with Mason uh, because we were all ignoring painfully ignoring the elephant in the room. And the elephant in the room is, why did you do that? Yes. Yes. Why did you do that to Leslie? And why did you do that to us? You mean Jennifer? Why'd you do it to Jennifer and why to us? Oh, excuse yeah. me. Yes, no, yes, yeah. yes. Uh, why did you do that to Leslie, Jennifer, the whole lot of them, Brian yeah. and... It's almost like they're two walking dead and one dead. Yes. Well, Jennifer's and dead and the parents are left with this. Do we have anything from Mason? I wasn't satisfied from the things that I've seen that Mason really has absorbed the consequences of his actions in this case. And I don't think he is a sponge like that. No. I think he's a sponge off of other people, yeah. but I don't think that he absorbs things or has an interest in any complex thinking that would involve responsibility, accountability, being part of a community. Yeah. Brian and Leslie Jenkins uh, just lived as outcasts in their family. Uh, you know, they only had one source of family love, and that was to cling to their family, Brian's twin sisters, who helped prop the family up, even though thought even though they thought Mason was guilty and needed to pay for his murdering actions and stay in prison forever and ever until hell freezes over. Yeah. But they didn't want Brian and Leslie to be judged. Yes. And, I you know, I don't want to judge Brian and Leslie. No. I want to understand. Yeah. And that's one of the reasons that I'm drawn to these stories. Well, it's trying sympathize. to understand. 
I I can't even imagine. I mean, before we started today, you and I talked about there's just a it's hard to find a place in here where I can think, what would I do and have a real sense of what I might do? This is so far outside yeah. of my understanding of all of it. Forgiveness, uh, rationale. The only reason, the only reason that they were able to uh, continue to remain in Brian and Leslie's life is because they didn't live in that community mm-hmm. and they didn't carry the Jenkins name. They had both married and taken their husband's name. So, you know, they didn't fear being judged the way that all these other people did in this lovely little zero crime town. Yeah. And I, I'm not trying to put Chatham down. I'm just saying, let's just not lie about it. Well, it's they a second, punished these parents for raising it. Mason to, and, you know, it's like a it's a second victimization for the parents. They've lost enough. They don't need to hear about how it's all their fault, you know, because it isn't. And they've lost a lot. It could have, it literally could happen to anyone, I think, because of the details thus far. I mean, again, I don't know a lot about the actual like crime and crime scene. We didn't really go through those details as much as we tend to sometimes, I think, with our stories. But like, this was a normal family. There's no, there's no lead up. There's no big kerfluffle in the family that carries this tension through for years. No, in fact, you know, Brian, that was one of the things that Brian could never grasp. Um, And in fact, I entitled this uh, story, Hold Tight to What Remains. And and I'll tell you why, Caroline. Uh, Statement, uh, Brian made a statement before he died. He was very pressured all the time to explain why did you stand by your son after your son murdered, actually slaughtered your daughter and was planning to kill you and planning to kill Leslie? How on earth can you stand by your son? And he said, we got to grab onto every inch of what we got here. He was adamant about that. He always called his family the family unit. He held tight onto every lie and died holding on to half the truth. He knew his son was planning to murder his parents too, but he continued to hold on. He didn't live long enough to know that it wasn't all started by an accident because that was still part of the lie that was going on. So he still thought it was a tragic cascade of events that accidentally got started. And in fact, to date, Mason Jenkins has not completely come clean. He still insists the impetus of all of this carnage was the first shot that was an accident. Well, he may have fully convinced his brain of that. Honestly, I think people are capable of doing that. What do they call that? False memories? Yeah. I'm very, I mean, Mason's smart enough to do that for himself, but I don't believe that. I don't believe you make last will and testaments twice if uh, if it all is going to result in an accidental firing of the first shot. And then a call to your mom to see if you can really execute your plan to its fullest. I don't believe it was an accident at all. I just, and I wonder, sometimes I think it's a blessing for Brian that he left this you know, live thinking that because I think that that was something he really rested on as a salvation 
point. You've got to hold on to what you've got. And he, his family unit was his universe. Yeah. And, you know, he knew how to make money to bring home to his family unit. And the way the family is configured is the way the family is configured into a unit and you stick together and you, you do with that, whatever you can, because you got to hold on to what you've got left. That's his point of view. Personally, I don't think Mason Jenkins will ever get released, even though he continually gets the risk rating of low to moderately low risk of recidivism, meaning do we think he's going to Pete, the murder. I would worry that if he got out, he'd killed his. He would kill his mother. I do. Well, I think he would. It depends. I think he would just go back to the for money thing, right? Criminal activity for money, for monetary gain. Which, of course, criminal activity includes murder, and he already has shown his, his ability to do that. So yeah. stealing her life to him, stealing the mother's life, stealing the father's life. This is what needed to be done in order to break into this car called money. Yes. To the little money car. Yes. And he equated having money with having a life. If you've well, got money. respect. Did you notice oh, that? Oh, yes. That he and that, it was actually, like, you're absolutely right about that. Yeah. Leslie has stated that, quote, we want to know the truth, live with it, and move on. But we can't have an honest, sincere relationship with Mason because... He has not revealed the total truth. We need to get the elephant out of the room. Oof, she's so strong. That Leslie is just so much stronger than I think I could be. Now, I'm going to just tell you that this next part is what made me so sad for Brian. I feel like all my sympathy does appear to be siphoned off of, you know, I don't understand Leslie at this point, but I will, I'm not going to judge her. I'm yeah. just trying to understand her. And, uh, but I feel like I understand this father, yeah. I guess is what I'm trying to say. Okay. The saddest statement, the one that to me was made by Brian before he died. He said he remembered Christmas. They celebrated when Mason got out of jail the day after Christmas, 1998. Mason and Jennifer, age 20 and 18, were laughing and in a great mood, so showing so much love for each other. Then a week later came the murder. Brian said, how can that kind of love be a murder thing in a week? I actually really liked that statement also. He's right. He nailed it. How does that ha- I mean, it's enough to short circuit a brain. How does that work? Oh, as for Mason, here is his most recent published excuse about what happened. I was confused because I just got out of jail. You know, your introductory statement about oneself should never include the statement because I just got out of jail, but (laughs) that was him. I can see I'm not successful. I started thinking about killing my parents and getting their money. So I will have money, which means I would be respected. So you were right on the button there, Caroline. Mm -hmm. But my sister was home, so I had to kill her. I shot her five times. 
I had to reload after each shot, but I had to make it look like four men came in from a white van. Oh, my God. One went back inside and shot her. But my parents came home together, and I couldn't carry out my main thing. And the first shot to Jennifer's head was an accident. Damn it. This is like I a do checklist. not believe that. It's like a checklist for a, st- a plausible story. Oh, and at the end, it's, it's all an accident. It's not an accident because of the premeditation. Doesn't even matter if you did drop the gun, it went off after you did. It doesn't matter. You had gotten to this point. It was not an accident. It was a situation you generated, created, and executed. And so, oh, that's frustrating. But it is telling to me that he sees the money as the respect. And it takes me back to like, did he get caught up in this Jennifer's the golden child. I'm the quote unquote F up. And he just was stuck in this place. He does know he's an F up. I can see I'm not successful. He he didn't say I can see I can't be successful. He said, I can see I'm just not successful. So he's not ever looking inside and trying to lift himself up by his own bootstrap, so to speak. Yeah. So maybe he was depressed oh, and definitely. maybe he was, yeah, maybe he was depressed about, you know, why am I such an F up? Well, he definitely needed intervention, right? Even at oh, 12. Oh yeah. See, that's what I don't understand about this whole thing. I've never on. found one scintilla of evidence that he went to therapy about his tendency to steal, which means a lot. Stealing, yeah. I mean. That's huge, uh, but. There's a way to there's a way to channel that, especially in capitalist America. You go to business school. That is where cheating is legitimized. So, go, you know, go get yourself a job. But I just, you know, Caroline, I think, all I can say is that's not funny because that is true. I know it's that true, is but not funny. But I that's, know, but if you think I, of it in I terms know. of like all those brokers could have just been deadbeats. I mean, you know, it's a better option. But I think lots. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of evidence as far as I'm concerned that a lot of top CEOs of a lot of top companies are psychopaths but they are just not killers we're just lucky they channeled it differently I believe that I know (laughs) I know Um, thank you for channeling your energy differently (laughs) on a somber note toward the end of his life Brian who I really consider to be a chief victim here yeah. He felt he knew that it was Mason's plan to kill them all. And he finally realized that he was he was always afraid of losing his family unit, regardless of the cost. I, I feel like that's probably why he finally just, you know, died. He just had lost everything. He had nothing left to hold on to, Caroline. Well, and we know that when you hold emotions in your body. I believe this anyway. I don't, I actually don't know or care if there's evidence to support it, but I'm pretty sure there is. But when you hold that kind of stress, distress, um, emotional pain, and you just hold it in your body, you're, you're killing your body that your cells absorb that impact and it weakens them faster. He was so thin and, and frail toward the end. You can see it in the documentary Mm -hmm. murder for life, a Canadian documentary that really to me is just a comedy slash drama slash tragedy 
of Kafkaesque proportions to visit the killer of your daughter, knowing that the killer of the daughter was also going to murder you. And they knew that right away because of the wills. Yes. The forged wills. It was obvious. And the call to to the mom and the realization that they're not going to come home sequentially like you thought. Right. Just to, to understand that your loss is not just... Jennifer, your loss, your loss is both your children. You have lost both your children. Mm-hmm. But instead, Canada, Canadian system of, of um, crime and punishment allows you to go play house yeah. until one of them can't take it anymore and they die. Yeah. And it's all laid out in this documentary. It's Adventure. all laid out. Yeah. These are smart people too, Caroline. Oh, They're for smart sure. people. This that's why this, this unimaginable thing. Yeah. It's crazy. It's just I'm sorry I, I I walked all over you. What were you saying? No, no, I think that's the thing is that this is so uncomfortable because I think this could happen to anybody and this probably has happened to many families, you know, in in some kind of way where you're meant to accept the perpetrator of the loss. Right? Like there's this dichotomy right. of what's going to kill you more? The relinquishing of the two or the saving of what is left and the acknowledgement of what has happened in order to move forward with what is left. I mean, it's- they still don't know what happened because Mason, the asshole that he is, he won't say no. yeah. the real thing that got into his head. I had to kill my sister because if I killed my parents to get money she was going to get half of it and i'm just too greedy to do that i want the whole thing if i can't have the whole thing then uh i don't know what to do uh but i'm going to start with my sister because my parents are going to come home separately and i'll kill them separately and that didn't pan out so now he's in prison but he's got a faux cottage with knives on the wall that that blows my mind caroline and Uh i I wonder how many letters the uh, correctional system has gotten from the citizens of Canada. Are you out of your freaking mind? But I'm thinking maybe, maybe they voted for it. I think a lot of... Maybe there was a faux cottage referendum. I actually think uh, most countries outside the United States um, do it differently. Some better, some worse. But even in... um, like especially I think in Norway. Now Norway is a bit of an anomaly to me because Norway is literally the happiest place on earth. They have nothing to do except for study what makes us happy. So I mean clearly that's the place you want to get to. But Norway's jails are like literally open door. I mean they're like faux cottages and you don't even have to have friends over. Like you the idea being we want you we want you to return to a different lifestyle i think but it I, I don't know if that depends on the crime like i don't know what they do for murder cuz some people shouldn't get out i think we should all recognize that as a society like you said some born psychotic you know you just it's like you got to be channeled in the right way if you ever want to avoid the criminality that comes with that I mean, you know, part of me is thinking, you know, these these prisons in other countries that allow you to live in a community with other like people and you're fed well and you are educated and all of these things and you have your own little apartment and yeah. all that kind of stuff. 
that how in the hell is that justice? Right. Um, and I'm not talking about retribution. I'm talking about justice. In other words, you have to take accountability. But then I'm thinking, you know, no, actually, it's it's uh, you're you're still not free. Right. You're you're still it's still a jail. Oh yeah. You can't you don't get to wake up when you want. You don't get to sleep in on Saturday. You don't get to watch the shows you want to watch when you want to watch them. You may not even get to attend the classes you want to get. I I don't know how it goes. I've never I don't been either. Here. I don't plan well, on Well, I mean, you know, we're a big know? country and and as in many millions of people and lots of land and how do we keep society safe when you've got that many millions of people? And I just don't see us going in the direction of Canada, even yeah. though they have a lot of people too. I just don't think you could afford to do that. No. Yeah. Um, and I'm not even keen on the idea of faux cottages. I just think that that is wrong yeah. somehow. I'm not, I'm not advocating a cruel and unusual punishment or even throwing people in the dungeon and making them rot there. I'm not in anyway. Ours is not a crime and justice show. Mm -hmm. Ours is say what was going on in this family. Mm -hmm. And I think that what was going on in this family is one idealized way to raise children. And they came close to it, but for Mason. And Mason never maybe got his issues addressed. I don't know. Uh, and he decided that he would make his money by stealing things, including his sister's life. Mm -hmm. And that pretty much sums up our story today of the Jenkins family in Chatham, Ontario, Ontario, Canada. Uh, Mason, uh, I don't care if you ever get out. I think you're getting more than you deserve. Your mom is still alive. So you have, you know, your mommy. And um, I'll leave it at that and quit judging on everybody. <laughs> I, I'm trying to understand, but I see that judgment is seeping in against Mason. And well, I'd that's say how I feel. We that's just hope that we just hope that enough wherewithal comes to those needed that the truth will come out because I think Leslie's right on the head. You really can't move anywhere until the truth is available for all to see. And that's that. Yes. Well, he destroyed his whole family. You and I have said many times, people who murder a member of their family ought to might as well go on and be called family annihilators because you can never be an intact family again. And that's what Mason Jenkins did in 1997, and I'll just leave it there. Bye-bye, Caroline, and thank okay. you so much to our listeners. Uh, today's episode was researched, written, and narrated by Bridget and Caroline, produced by Andy. Our research is solely based on public domain documents, including legal documents, articles, and books about our subject. Episodes are aired every other week, and if you like us, Please subscribe and give us a five-star review. Tell your friends about us in person and by social media. Or make some new friends and tell them. That would be good. We just really want to build our audience and get feedback and enjoy the 
unraveling of some of these family murders. All these actions help new listeners find us. And thank you so much, listeners. We really appreciate you. And one more thing. Don't forget to live and let live. So bye-bye, Caroline. Bye-bye.